Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Kevin Ryan is the co-founder of MongoDB, Business Insider, Guild Group, Zola, Nomad Health, and several other companies. He's also the founder of Alicorp, and Alicorp companies have raised over $2 billion in venture capital and employ thousands of people in New York City and around the country. In this wide-ranging discussion, we cover what's next for the technology sector and what Kevin's investing in now, including psychedelic therapies for mental health. I'm Naveen Tukaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Well, Kevin, great to see you. It's been a couple of years. I'm happy to be here. Good to see you as well. Thanks for being on the podcast. Why don't we jump right in? The audience knows a little bit about your background, but maybe you could tell us how you got started on this sort of epic entrepreneurial journey that you've been on the last couple of decades and maybe highlighting, no pun intended, maybe you could double click on double click as you tell the story. Absolutely. A long time ago in 94, 95, 96, I was working for EW Scripps, which is a big media company. And one of the big projects I worked on was setting up an internet site for us. And that became very, very successful. And therefore, I decided that this was the most fundamental trend I was going to see in my lifetime. They didn't really want to double down and invest in the internet as much as I thought they should. And so at one point, I thought, you know, I'm going to go do this on my own. And I was going to go start a company in the ad-supported space. And I ran across the two companies that existed in New York at the time. This is now May of 96. And I met the guys, two guys that started DoubleClick, who I thought were incredibly impressive and had deep technology background, which I didn't really have. I was a business person. And so they asked me to join them. And I became the CFO and quickly became the president and then became the CEO of that company. And we went from 10 people when I joined to 2,000 employees four years later with offices in 25 countries. So I spent my early 30s building that company up and having an incredible experience where I learned a lot. And I was there for nine years. And then after that, decided to start more companies and then later on in investing companies, which I've been doing this now for 25 years. Maybe you could just highlight a few of your better known investments like MongoDB, Gilt. I mean, there's a lot of sort of in the tech world, household names that you founded or run. Yeah. And these are all companies that I founded. Yeah. I founded with two other people, MongoDB, which is a publicly traded company, which was worth $37 billion about a year ago. It's now worth about 13 or 14 billion, but still it's a very big number and it's doing great. I founded an e-commerce company called Gilt, which had about a thousand employees, big e-commerce phenomenon. I started Business Insider, which is the biggest business news site in the world, about 300 million uniques. And then I started a company called Nomad Health, which uses technology to place temporary nurses and does about $500 million in revenue now. And then and I started a company the next year called Zola, which is a wedding registry that 200,000 couples will use this year to, you know, just hundreds of millions of dollars of wedding gifts. And then I started actually ramping it up more because I was doing about one a year on average. Now, Alicorp today starts eight companies a year and I have a full team to do that. And we are also an investor. And so we invest in about 20 companies a year. So from a money point of view, it's about 50-50. But from a focus point of view, we spend still more of our time on starting our own companies than we do in investing just because it takes a lot more time. And what's the level of capital that you guys are managing now? Or do you measure it in terms of the num- number of companies that you're following currently? 
So we invest right now about 80 to $100 million a year into those two buckets. So companies we started or companies that we invested in. And so we don't have outside investors, so it's not official fund size, although we've announced that we have $100 million that I've dedicated just to healthcare. I have another fund in robotics, I have a fund in social impact, but this is more just allocations of capital so that people know that we are a very strong in that space. It's become a big operation with 22 people on the business side, 50 engineers. So it's now already one of the larger early stage investment firms in all of New York City. Yeah, one thing that I think is so interesting about you is that you've been successful in so many different industries, not just a little bit successful, extremely successful. So do you mind explaining to the audience how you evaluate industries for investment and how you evaluate potentially that investment? Because that's a pretty unusual track record to build sort of that level of company in so many industries. And I would say that's a good question. It's the single question I get the most when I'm speaking in front of a business school or things like that, because they'll generally teach you that you can't do what we're doing. Doing, which is be successful in multiple different areas. And look, I think a lot of it has to do with one, picking the industries you want to be in. Because when we start companies or we're early stage investors, we have to be involved in this company for 10 years to build up a very successful company. Mongo is very successful. We also started it 15 years ago. It takes time to get to real scale. And a lot of the value comes in year seven through 15. So you want to pick good industries. And then it's a judgment on the idea and the people. When we're starting it ourselves, we just got to think, are we building a product that people really want? And there are pockets everywhere. So sometimes we'll just come up with an idea or I'll come up with an idea. For example, wedding registries is a good one where there's not really a technology play there. But I spotted something eight years ago that didn't exist in the market, which is you got married at Bloomingdale's, used Bloomingdale's. And the only things I could buy for you are home products or kitchen products. You and I both love the Brooklyn Nets, I can't get you tickets. Bloomingdale's would say, look, we don't sell tickets to the Nets. We're not going to do that. Or yoga classes or camping, you know, or Bordeaux wine, all kinds of things that you and I might have in common. And I know really resonate with you. And on top of that, you have made now in today's environment, maybe been living with your future spouse for two years. You already have a blender. So it's just a better product and it's become super successful. And we just spotted it and great execution. And the second part is just picking great people. I had two co-founders who had worked with me at Guilt. I knew them very well. So a lot of it is execution. I always remind people that ideas somewhat valuable, but not that valuable. If I told you the idea for Business Insider, which was a new business site that was very timely, you'd be like, that's that's not a great idea, Kevin. It's just not. But the execution that Henry Blodgett brought as the CEO to it was incredible. And that's what made it stand out. Well, you, you're making my job easy for me, Kevin. I wanted to talk about Business Insider because the media landscape, at least from a layman's perspective, has changed pretty dramatically since you started Business Insider, which I think was probably yeah. 10 years ago, right? More. Yeah, 2007, 2008. Yeah, almost 15 years ago. Can you talk a bit about what the media landscape was back then? Because I think people forget how different things were. No, it's a really important thing to bring up because today people forget, unless they're old, that in 2007, places like Business Week and the Wall Street Journal basically did not update their website during the day. And it's because they were just starting the transition and they were on the schedule that they'd always been on, which is, you know, the Wall Street Journal closed its books every night at, let's say, midnight so that it could be in the paper the next day. And so they sort of stayed on that schedule. And so there was no one writing articles at 10 in the morning and posting them. And so what we introduced, and, you know, I think not only us, but we were a big part of timely 
punchier headlines like Yahoo bought Twitter and overpaid. So the journal would never have an article about that, but ours is more interesting. Who knows whether you're right or not, but it's a point of view that makes you think, hmm, maybe I want to read that and see. And then during the day, we might get, when we publish that, or we publish a rumor even, someone from Twitter would send us notes saying, actually, you're mostly right, but we know some other things that we're going to tell you right now. And so the story gets better during the day. Now everyone reports online and has many advantages. And so it was just more innovative. And so since then, many people have reacted acted and changed, but we were there quite early. And I think the most interesting thing is that during the 2007 to let's say 2010 or 11, most of the valuable internet properties were created. And since then, very few. If you're looking at Huffington Post, if you're looking at Business Insider, if you're looking at BuzzFeed, Bleacher Report, almost all of them were created in that period where the mobile phone came in and changed the dynamic and increased the size of the market. And each one of us grabbed our categories and most of them have not given it up since then. Now what's changed is that Advertising is very hard. It's, you know, the, the CPMs you get are worse, much tougher. And so it's a tougher business model. There's just a lot of choices in media and so hard to compete. What do you think about, and maybe I'm leading the, the witness here, but what do you think about the polarization in media right now and the dynamics there? And how is that affecting public policy? So I think it's a huge problem. It doesn't impact most of the businesses I just talked about. Like Business Insider, it doesn't. Bleacher Report, it doesn't. TMZ on following Hollywood, it doesn't. But anything touching politics, absolutely. And I think, you know, makes it harder. Candidates who are more worried about being challenged from the far left or the far right in the primaries pushes them in the wrong direction as opposed to being pushed to the center. And I think media has been that way too. And look, none of us have a solution for the polarization that occurs on social media. If I ask any consumer, do you have you know Russian trolls in your feed? And they say, no, I don't have any problem. I'm worried about everyone else. They must have a problem. But my feed is great. And so no one thinks they have a problem internally. Then therefore, it's hard to change. And technically, you control everything in your Facebook feed or, or Twitter. If you don't like something, I can. I just unfollowed two people on Twitter this morning. Just decided it wasn't worth it. So you can't complain that much because you control it all, which makes it hard to legislate. Well, what is the responsibility of the media? Should they be relatively unbiased or should they just pander to their particular audience? Like, what's your view on that? Do they have a responsibility at all? Well, we have to remember who the they is because we're all in agreement that we'd like to have much more probably nonpartisan objective news. The question legally is, let's say you and I are quite extreme in something. No one says I shouldn't be able to send you an email and say, oh my God, I hate this person in politics. They're terrible. And if I have 20 people following me on Twitter, why can't I say that to them? I mean, I'm not threatening people's lives, but I can say I think Donald Trump is quite corrupt. That's my opinion. And many of my friends agree with it. Many people out there agree with it, but some people completely disagree. How do you constrain that. So I, none of us have a good solution. I meet with senators all the time who really struggled to figure out the right treatment there. None of us have figured that out. Yeah. When you, when you figure that out, please let me know. I'd love to invest in that business. Yeah. And speaking of sort of businesses that you've recently invested in giving our audience a sense of the future, can we talk a bit about Transcend Therapeutics? And maybe we can apply yeah. the, the mini rubric you gave us before, which picking the industry you want to be in for 10 to 15 years, the idea, the people, and then assessing, as I paraphrase it, the product market fit. And by the way, yeah. full disclosure, I'm a very small investor in Transcend Therapeutics, as you already know. And so yeah. I probably will disagree with you on a number of these points. But how did you get involved, one? And tell us a little bit about the industry and why you think it's so interesting. 
Absolutely. It's a, it's a perfect example because this one was driven very much by me. There are companies we invest in where one of the partners has really been the driver of it, but this one was driven by, by me. Starting five years ago, I became very interested in psychedelics for mental health. I was influenced by the Michael Pollan book, which everyone should read, How to Change Your Mind, one of the New York Times top 10 books of the year five years ago. And I realized that I had been wrong just because I hadn't looked into it at the time, thinking that these psychedelics were just really bad for you and most drugs are very bad for you. And then really realized that for mental health, that the academic studies that were double blind being done at the top institutions of the world were all showing that this was incredibly helpful to people who have the following six conditions, depression, PTSD, anxiety, OCD, anorexia, and addiction. We don't have a lot of data that shows that it works for things like bipolar, psychosis, multiple personalities. Maybe we will find things in the future, but I would not claim that we have found that to date or think that it works for that today. But the first six categories I gave impact some crazy number of people in this country. I mean, every single person on this call knows one or two or three or four people who have one of those conditions. And we all know that we're not doing a very good job of solving it. And it's an enormous, enormous problem. I'd encourage everyone to read Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, which talks about the negative impact of SSRIs or antidepressants on the country and on people. And so I am completely convinced, having done a lot of work, that 10 years from now, psychedelics will be an enormous addition to mental health in the United States, that there'll be at that point probably 10 to 20 different compounds that have been approved for specific conditions. So let's say next year, MDMA will be approved for the entire country by the FDA for PTSD. And then at one point, psilocybin will be approved for depression and maybe Ibogaine will be approved for addiction and on and on and on. It, it was a great thing that I wanted to get involved with. And I, by the way, first got involved on a nonprofit basis because I'm a big funder of the Yale Center for Psychedelic Research, which did a lot of the original work on ketamine in the 90s and now does great work, but also Johns Hopkins, NYU, a lot of other campuses are doing amazing work now. So I feel very passionate about it. It takes five to eight years to get through the FDA process. You know, we went out and found compounds that we thought had not been studied that much, but had encouraging possibilities for depression. And we are taking those compounds through the FDA process and, you know, hope to contribute to this and make people better. Can you repeat when some of those compounds will be approved? So you believe MDMA in a clinical supervised format will be approved in the next couple of years? Next year. Yeah. And and by the way, everything I'm talking about for psychedelics is to have them approved to be prescribed by doctors. None of this is talking about buying them on the street like people buy cannabis in dispensaries today. We're not talking about that. In the United States, there are two different ways of having this be approved. One is that the FDA makes you go through a five-year process, phase one, phase two, phase three trials. And so MDMA for PTSD is going through the second part of its phase three trials. And almost everyone thinks it will be approved during 2023. And then at the state level, the ballot initiative, or if the legislature wants to change it, you can approve things. So Oregon, almost two years ago, exactly, approved psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, to be legal, to be given out in Oregon only for almost any condition. And they gave it two years to establish the protocols, which was a good idea of how to do that. Starting in the beginning of next year, people can go to a clinic in Oregon or can be prescribed by a doctor. There's also another ballot initiative coming up in Colorado. And this is not to be confused with decriminalization, which is also a very important thing because these things should be decriminalized. And that's happening in many places, but that's not the same thing as being legal to be prescribed. It just means we won't arrest you if we find you with two ounces of mushrooms, but I want doctors to be able to prescribe it. I should also say that it's now legal in Costa Rica. It's legal in Jamaica for plant-based medicines to be prescribed. So if you knew someone had depression, 
they could go down. I actually have a small investment in a company called Holos, which is opening a resort in Costa Rica and then soon in other places so that people can go down and we'll see a doctor go through a process of taking probably psilocybin, see a doctor again, and then can come back. It's a very safe process. How many people could be affected by these changes, say, in 10 years from now? You know, I think there'll be 10 million people easily. And the only reason, there are many more people who should be affected by it. The challenge is going to be, you know, how much does it cost? Do we have the way to distribute that? Do you have access? There's a bunch of questions that have not been answered. Like, I'll give you an example. In Oregon, I don't know if they've resolved it yet, but we have to decide, obviously, as a guide, if I were a doctor and I sit down with you and I can give you psilocybin, but I sit with you for six hours. So one-on-one, that is incredibly expensive. My time is $250 an hour plus follow-up. Now, can I do it with two people at once? Can I do six people at once? Can I do it with a nurse? All those things have to be worked out. If we don't do that, this will not be accessible to people. Hundreds of underground guides in the United States, that they charge $2,000 a day to do this. And so it's not accessible to everyone. Definitely. But a lot of exciting things to come for sure. And when they are approved, I do agree with you. That's It's going to be a, a watershed moment. But the implementation is going to be a big, big factor because there's not that many licensed guys. And what's the licensing process? And how is that going to work? And yeah. what does that even mean, et cetera? Oregon will be fascinating next year because by the end of the year, I don't know what the number will be, but let's say 5,000 patients have gone through the process. We'll have a tremendous amount of data. And you know, in some ways, I would argue that psychedelics are the safest drugs that will ever be approved. And I say that only because if you had a new breast cancer drug, that by the time even it gets approved, how many people have tried it? Maybe 300 in your trials? Do you know how many people have taken you know LSD in the last 20 years? Probably 10 million. And so pregnant women have taken it, people who have epilepsy have taken it. So if there were big, big issues, it's not perfect data collection, but we would know about it more. And the fact that these are not addictive and you can't really overdose from psilocybin or LSD, for example, makes them fundamentally safer in my book than alcohol, where you can overdose and you can become addicted. And many, 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 many people do. No, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we've talked about a lot of different industries, a lot of different investments you've been involved with. What advice are you giving to all your CEOs? Should they be preparing for a long winter? What do you think the capital markets are going to look like over the next six to 12 months? You know, what advice are you giving them given, you know, you've been at this for a little while? Look, I think it's important to always remind everyone else and yourself that you just fundamentally don't know what things are going to be like a year from now. A year ago, no one was talking about the Ukraine war because no one thought it was going to happen. And, you know, inflation was not in the same situation. So many things we would have all gotten wrong had we had this call a year ago. But you have to take into account that the markets are way down. Capital is more expensive. Inflation is up. Interest rates are up. Getting capital, you know, our best guess has to be that it will continue until it changes to be much harder to get. So you need to be cautious. But fundamental, you know, there's still tremendous capital capital available in VC firms. They are going to spend it. The one thing you can be guaranteed is if someone you know raises a $300 million fund, they're not giving that money back. That money is going to be invested. It may be delayed six months. It may be over four years and not two and a half years, but they're going to spend it. That's going to prop up the sector. And the other reason is that fundamentally, we look at the 100 companies we're involved with. I bet the average company is growing at 100% per year. Something is working. They're not all going to make it, but they are taking market share from other companies. Real value is being created. Like Nomad Health is an example, doing $500 million in nurse placements. We can debate what that company is worth. Would have been worth a billion and a half two years ago. Maybe today it's worth $750 million. We could debate that. There's no way that's worth zero. That's worth a lot of money. 
It's often EBITDA positive. It's taking market share in a real business from other people by having a better technology product. And there are hundreds of examples of that. And there's some companies that won't make it. And by the way, that's perfectly fine. You need a culling in this industry, just like the deer. If all the deers survive, we end up with too many deers. You need some foxes out there to take down some of the deer to have a stable ecosystem. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And this will be true of my portfolio too. If you're doing a round, maybe 10 to 20% of companies don't make it. And probably those people should go on and do other things because our idea was not that great. And in the past, these companies were being funded. And so then they waited four years and then found out that it wasn't really working that well. In some ways, they're better off learning it's not going to work yeah. earlier and not yeah. burning through as much capital and having it on your track record, et cetera. I'll just say one more point. It's also why just stretching out your funding is not the right thing. Everyone's like, I'm cautious. I'm spending very little money. And yeah, but you're also making very little progress. Like if you were starting a hotel and said to me, you know, I'm super smart now. I'm only going to build half a floor a year. I'm going to spend very little money. And your hotel's not going to be done for 20 years. That's not a smart thing to do. That's a dumb thing to do. You need to build that hotel and get it done and then find out whether it works or not. Either build it or don't build it. But here, if you're building a company, you got to get your product market fit and make sure it's working. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But don't find out seven years from now it doesn't work. That advice, that makes a lot of sense, would be more relevant to earlier stage companies as opposed to companies that are, you know, 10 million plus ARR, they have product market fit, maybe they're on their second product and they want to stretch out so they can go out, like MongoDB, not that that's cash flow negative, but if that was, you probably would say something different for a company that's on the more mature side of things. I would, but also the basics haven't changed in business. Meaning if you have a company that has 10 million ARR, if you're hiring a salesperson for $200,000 a year and he or she's bringing in $600,000 a year, you should do that all day long. And you will generally find people, if you have the data to show that, people will give you money to do that. And if they're not, you are making a poor decision. And if your engineers are improving your product so much that you're bringing in new revenues, there's lots of people who want to make good investments in companies. But there are also many companies that have too many people that have spent too much and need to cut back. I bought a company called Meetup two years ago, which is not the normal thing I do, but it was an incredible opportunity during COVID. And we had 135 people the day I bought it. That was way too many. We went down to 90. And that company's been making millions of dollars every year since I bought it during COVID because we're running it the way we should run it. I see a lot of e-commerce companies and startups out there that are operating as if they're growing at 100% a year, in which case it's normal that you don't make money. And now they're growing at 10% a year. And if you're not making money growing at 10% a year, I'm not sure what you're waiting for. And you're 10 years old at this point, something's wrong. So you either increase your growth rate or cut your expenses there. What gives you hope for the future? We've talked about a lot of different topics. If you have a positive outlook, we would love to hear it. If not, we'd love to hear that too. I feel incredibly good about the startup sector, what's happening in technology, what's happening in healthcare. Underlying, when it's going to kick in five years, 10 years from now, you see breast cancer deaths are down because we had better technology, better tools. What we're doing in biotech, in material science, in most aspects of technology, in electronic vehicles, in energy, all of that is getting better. I have no concerns about that. And U.S. in particular is great, but it's also good things are happening in other parts of the world. Fundamental research that's occurring in the top 50 universities in the United States is mind-blowing and making the world a better place. You know, I'm worried about the polarization. I'm worried about the dysfunction of government. People are threatening to shut down our government is not effective. Watch what the UK went through in the last couple of weeks is bad, bad government, bad, bad execution. 
We have a lot of that in the United States as well. That's frustrating. I don't feel like we are overall as a society or as a government tackling some of the major issues, whether it's education, whether it's infrastructure. I think the Biden administration has actually been doing a good job on some of this, better than we've seen in the past. But some of these issues are very big. The fact that we don't have a consensus in this country that climate change is a big problem, you know, is disturbing. I can't believe I would have that conversation. You know, what to do about it is a very tricky one. And where should you spend? But the mere existence of that problem, it's insane that we're discussing. Obviously, I'm on the left. I'm on the Democratic Party side of this issue. It's my body but it still seems disturbing. Economy's good. A lot of things in the world have gotten better. Day to day, we see little problems. But if you read the Steven Pinker book or the Hans Rosling book about over the last 25 years, every single metric we used to look at in the world has gotten much, much better. Girls going to school, education levels, life expectancy, go down the list of everything we used to measure societies by. Those have gotten better on a worldwide basis. They're not getting better in the United States necessarily, but they are in the world. You got to feel good about that. My last point on that, I spent some time in Latin America. You know, when I graduated from college, people forget there was one functioning democracy in 1985 in Latin America, and that was Chile. People were being disappeared off the streets of Argentina and Brazil. Today, is it perfect? No. Almost every country outside of Venezuela and Cuba is a functioning democracy. Not perfect, but they have free elections. There's absolutely no wars occurring there. Economies are growing. Things are much better over 25 years than they were then. Well, we will take that as hope for the future. Kevin, thanks so much for making the time for us and our audience today. Happy to do it. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.